You know, whenever we humble ourselves before the word of God, we learn many things from him, many things that we can apply to our lives that we might enjoy more fully all of the, all of the blessings that are ours in Christ. And today will be no exception. But while the purpose of this text is to provide an example from the life of Paul of what it means to relinquish our rights for the good of others, you will see that there are several other important truths that will emerge from our study this morning. We're going to see truths pertaining to the qualifications of an apostle. You might know that some people claim to be apostles today. The question is, on what basis can they make that assertion? Are these men and even women people that truly speak for God? Do they truly perform miracles or are they frauds? We will also look at some truths pertaining to the importance of compensating those who, as Paul says in verse 14, get their living from the gospel. The issue of pastoral remuneration. Now, frankly, this is a subject I am very uncomfortable in addressing. Um, Fortunately, I'm preaching to the choir. I I don't want you to think that in any way I'm preaching that you might do more for me or for our pastoral staff. We are very well cared for, and I rejoice in that. But this is the next passage, and so I'm going to preach it, all right? You're also going to see some truths pertaining to what it means to be called to pastoral ministry. Now, all of these matters are subordinate to the primary purpose of the passage, and that is to explain why Paul relinquished his right for remuneration for a very important cultural reason and how that principle applies to us. And we're going to see that that ultimately this is a continuation of chapter 8. May I remind you, because it's been some time since we were there, that he illustrated the principle that love must limit liberty in chapter 8. And we may have the freedom to do something. We may even have the right to receive something. But if it harms someone else, we must be willing to subordinate our freedom for the right of someone else. Now, you may think that these matters aren't really all that important for your life as a Christian. I know sometimes I I think back when I was a young man and I was sitting there and I would hear the pastors go on and on about certain things. I thought, well, you know, that doesn't really apply to me. And then as as you get older, you begin to, oh, what did he say back then? You know, well, that's what you're going to see today. In fact, I think of the Christian life sometimes as a is a, one of those thousand-piece jigsaw puzzles. You've, you've, you've maybe done those before. And it's only when all of the pieces are in place that you're able to see the full picture, right? And it was always one of my sneaky little things to do when my sister was putting those together to walk by and grab a few of those pieces and put it in my pocket so that it would, you know, frustrate her towards the end. Well, where are those pieces? Um, that was before I was saved, by the way, so... But the point is, we need the full picture of God's redemptive purposes. We need the full picture of how we should live for him. And sadly, many times as believers, we don't have all the pieces to the puzzle. And uh, many times uh, we have pieces 
that are kind of misplaced. We think they may go here, but they really go over here. And, and so we end up being confused and deceived. And you see believers claiming promises, for example, that God never made and doing things that God doesn't really care about and so on and so forth. In fact, we know that there are many false teachers out there today, and it's a, it's a frightening thing. And they give the wrong pieces to the puzzle, shall we say. And, and in Matthew 7 and other passages, Jesus warned about how most people that call themselves Christians are going to be deceived by these kinds of people. There's the few and the many. They're going to be deceived by wolves in sheep's clothing. Those who disguise themselves as angels of light in order to permeate the minds of the undiscerning and the desperate with deceptions. False prophets who will deceive. False prophets who will destroy the naive and the gullible masses by speaking revelations, for example, that they claim they have received from God. Distorting the word of God to tickle the ears of those who resent the truth. In fact, God reserves his harshest condemnation for these kinds of teachers. In Scripture, he describes them as dry wells, fruitless trees, raging waves, wandering stars, brute beasts, hideous stains, vomit-eating dogs, mud-loving pigs, and ravenous wolves. So, folks, we need all the pieces to the puzzle to be discerning against these types of things. And what we will glean from our study this morning will hopefully provide some more of those pieces for you. Now, let's remember that Paul has been answering questions that the church at Corinth have given to him concerning practical Christian living. And in chapter 8, the question had to do, well, What about eating meat sacrificed to idols? Let me remind you of this now, because chapter 9 is going to be a continuation of this, only with a different illustration. You will remember the issue was uh, the, the people there would purchase their meat and from their local grocer, so to so to speak. But the meat was always sacrificed to idols. And they believed that you had to sacrifice your meat to idols in order to appease the god or the goddess or gain blessing from that god or goddess, but also, more importantly, to decontaminate the meat from evil spirits that would attach themselves to meat, and you would ingest it, and then you're in big trouble. So that was the thinking. Now, obviously, people would go with their meat. They would take it to the priest. The priest would divide it into three parts. The first part would be burn up completely for the god or the goddess. The second part went to feed the priests, and then they took, they took all that other part of theirs and took it to the markets to be sold, to make money. And that's where you would buy your meat. And then the third part of the meat you could keep, those of you that had sacrificed that meat. Now, this was a big problem for many of the Gentiles who were saved out of all of that all of that insanity, all of that pagan wit- wickedness. Because everywhere you went you have a reminder of of all of this pagan idolatry. You couldn't buy meat without it going through this process. You couldn't go to a company picnic or to a wedding without eating meat sacrificed to an idol. So some just couldn't eat it. They felt like it was dishonoring to the Lord. And other believers in the church said, oh, come on. There's no such thing as as those, those 
gods and goddesses don't even exist. Evil spirits don't get, go ahead and eat the meat, you know, help yourself. And of course, God didn't care. As you will recall in, in, in chapter 8, he said in verse 8, he said, Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat or the better if we do eat. But, and here's the, the principle, take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And he went on to say in verse 13, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Now, what we have in chapter 9, all the way through verse 13 of chapter 10, is an illustration of how this principle is played out in Paul's life. And then we will see the application of this principle in chapter 10, verse 14, all the way through the first verse of chapter 11. And I want to divide this discourse to you this morning in two real basic categories. First of all, we're going to look at this from the perspective of, number one, his right to be supported by the churches to whom he ministered. And then secondly, his reason for relinquishing his right to be supported by the churches to whom he ministered. So let's look at the first one here. This first heading, his right to be supported. And what what is interesting, really fascinating, there are 16 rhetorical questions that he uses to illustrate this principle in his life and ministry. And he begins by saying, am I not free? The point being, you folks are making such a big deal about your freedom, your liberty in Christ. Well, am I not also free? I also have that freedom, right? And of course, the answer is yes. And then he offers six reasons that we'll look at briefly, six reasons why he had the right to be supported by the churches to whom he ministered. And you will see why this is a big issue. And the first is because, number one, he's an apostle. Notice he says, am I not an apostle? Now, obviously, some were saying, well, he's not an apostle. You know, why are you listening to this guy? And one of the reasons they would say this is because the Greeks absolutely despised manual labor. They thought that you were of a lower class if you worked with your hands. In fact, Aristotle taught them that there's two classes of people. There's those who are the readers and the thinkers, and then there's those that work with their hands. And Socrates even said that if you have a philosopher that doesn't charge for what he teaches, don't listen to him because what he's saying has no value. So you can begin to see the cultural mindset. So some of the Corinthians were undoubtedly ashamed of the Apostle Paul because he worked with their hands. Maybe even their friends mocked him. We see a little of this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7. Paul says, or did I commit a sin? And humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach the gospel of God to you without charge. So Paul is going to continue now basically defending his apostleship. He says, have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Now, a few minutes ago, I spoke a little bit about this in our time of communion. And I said, you know, I can't wait. I know you can't either. I can't wait to see Jesus, our Lord. Paul saw him in remarkable ways. By the way, it was just this morning, I was thinking about this again, and, and I was reminded of, of Fanny Crosby's old hymn. Remember, she could not see, she was blind. 
And often you would you would see in her hymns or hear in her hymns about her desire to see the Lord. And one of the phrases that came to mind in, in that old hymn, my Savior, first of all, was the phrase that goes through the gates to the city in a robe of spotless white. He will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight, but I long to meet my Savior, first of all. Now, he says, have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? A rhetorical question. Of course he had. Now, it's important for you to remember that in the New Testament, there were at least three necessary criteria for a person to be an apostle. First of all, he had to have been a a, a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And this was true for Paul. He also had to be personally appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, he had to be able to authenticate his apostolic appointment through miraculous signs. And all of this was true. And so he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And we know that the Lord, for example, first appeared to Paul when he was Saul. Remember, on the road to Damascus. What a magnificent way to experience the Lord. You read about it in in Acts 9, the, the first eight verses. And in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 8, Paul states that he was the very last person, now catch this, the very last person to whom the resurrected Christ personally and physically appeared. Now, folks, that means that there's no other apostles. No other apostles after Paul, despite the claims to the contrary. Maybe you've heard of of C. Peter Wagner, who claims to be an apostle. He's a missiologist, a popular author, and a self-appointed apostle in what he calls the, quote, New Apostolic Reformation. And he asserted that in 2001, uh, 2001, quote, marked the beginning of the second apostolic age. He went on to say there is now, quote, widespread recognition that the office of apostleship was not just a phenomenon of the first couple of centuries of church history, but that that it is also functioning in the body of Christ today. And according to Wagner, contemporary Christians, quote, can begin to approach the spiritual vitality and power of the first century church only if we recognize, accept, receive, and minister in all the spiritual gifts, including the gift of apostle, end quote. And folks, there are millions of people who believe this. In the year 2000, Wagner formed the International Coalition of Apostles. And of course, he was the, quote, presiding apostle. But new apostles could join for $69 a month of membership dues. Membership rates at the end of 2012 varied slightly depending on the apostles' nation of residency. But the base fee was $35 for, quote, international apostles. The fee for apostles living in North America began at $450 per year. But you get a discount if you're married, if you, both of you are apostles, so you, it's only $650. So you ask, well, what, what does a guy like that, and people, what do they say about the biblical criteria for, uh, for an apostle? Well, he answers this. He says this, quote, 
there are three biblical characteristics of apostles, which some include in their definition of apostle, but which I have chosen not to include. Number one, signs and wonders, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Number two, seeing Jesus personally, 1 Corinthians 9, 1. And number three, planting churches, 1 Corinthians 3, 10. My reason for this is that I do not understand these three qualities to be non-negotiables. He went on to say, if a given individual lacks the anointing for one or more of them, this, in my opinion, would not exclude that individual from being a legitimate apostle. End quote. Folks, this is what happens when you allow personal opinion and experience to carry more weight than the authority of the Word of God. This is why the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura that you see as part of the five solas here in this auditorium, this is why that is so important. And this is why Roman Catholics have fought so violently against it. In fact, Roman Catholics similarly insist on apostolic succession that they apply to the Pope. Additionally, I might add that beyond the clear teaching of the New Testament that the office of an apostle ceased after Paul, isn't it interesting that not one single church father subsequent to Paul ever claimed to be an apostle? Moreover, Christian leaders from the second century on agreed that the apostolic period was unique and unrepeatable. So Paul says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord, Jesus our Lord? And then he goes on to say, are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, in ancient days, a seal on containers or correspondence indicated authenticity, the genuineness of what is inside. It guaranteed that the contents were what they were supposed to be. And the fact that the Corinthians manifested true saving faith was therefore Paul's seal of apostleship in the Lord. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Referring to Paul and Barnabas, don't we have a right? Well, of course. I mean, what, are we expected to go without food and drink? Verse 5, do we have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Obviously, yes. Now, it's interesting, though he chose to remain single after either being widowed or divorced, we're not sure which, but he had the same right as others to be married and to bring his wife along with him on missionary endeavors as the other men did. He had that right. And then sarcastically, he says in verse six, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? In other words, they had just as much right as anybody else to be supported if they chose to be so. And his second reason why he had the right to be supported is because it was just common sense. Verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? I mean, wouldn't that be absurd? You're, you're supposed to be serving as a soldier, but you've got to have a part-time job on the side in order to make ends meet. 
Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? So the soldier, the farmer, and the shepherd all live by their labor. Why would it be any different for those who minister the gospel? The third reason is because it's consistent with God's law. Verse 8, am I, I am not speaking, he says, these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? And then he refers back to Deuteronomy 25, 4. For it, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Then he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? The point is, he, God is using this as an example about how workers are to be paid for what they do. Anybody can see that. Verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And then he says, if, or it could be translated since, because grammatically that's also what he's saying here, since we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And the answer is, of course not. We should expect to be compensated materially. Now, folks, this is a very important principle for us to understand and obey. The Lord's servants, especially pastors, who work hard at preaching and teaching, are to be rewarded materially. This is why regular giving in the local church is to be a priority over, over all other giving. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. You know, I grow weary of all of the parachurch organizations bombarding believers constantly for the need for money. My, I, as a pastor, I get it all the time. You probably get it on your, on your emails as well. For only $30 a month, you can care for this orphan. By the way, if that comes from Africa, there's a 99% probability that it's a scam. So I hope you're not giving to that. For $25 a month, you can dig a well for this village. Or for, you know, $20 a month, you can feed this family or whatever. Thousands of organizations out there. And they crop up all the time, begging for money. While thousands of local churches and pastors and well-deserving missionaries struggle to make ends meet. In 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 17... Paul says, the elders who rule well, which could be translated rule with excellence, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching. And I've given you the note here. Preaching is a reference to public proclamation of the truth that includes exhortation and admonition. That's what I'm doing here. Not only preaching, but teaching which is a reference to doctrinal expositions of the word of God that provide the necessary bulwark against heresy. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. We know that though very poor and suffering under persecution, the first century churches in Macedonia faithfully and sacrificially gave their finances to those who labored among them, and including Paul and Barnabas, even after they left. The church in Macedonia would have included the church at Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and perhaps some others. We read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 
In verse 2, we, Paul says, in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Beloved, the Lord blesses our generous support of his work and of his workers And when we give to them, we give to him. Some people say, well, how much should I give? Well, the answer is found, for example, in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What has God purposed in your heart? And that principle is stated in even in the preceding verse. Now, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Folks, if I can put it this way, God's plan for financial soundness in your life and in your family is not greedy accumulation, but rather generous giving. Proverbs 3 and verse 9, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Malachi 3 and verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Likewise, in Luke 6, verse 38, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. The fourth reason why Paul had the right to be supported is that is because they had supported others. Why not him? Verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Now, you may recall that Paul was a man that worked with leather. He was a tent maker, as we read, for example, in Acts chapter 18 and verse 3. And Paul not only supported himself, but we read that he supported many others of those who worked with him as well. Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 8. And you ask, well, why didn't he rely on the support of the churches when he was with them? By the way, he did rely on it when he left them later on. But when he was with them, why didn't he do that? He had a right to do that. Well, the answer is right here in this verse, in verse 12. To avoid being a, quote, hindrance to the gospel of Christ. The word hindrance in the original language is what you might expect. It means an obstacle. It can refer to that which falls in front of a person to prevent them from going their way. In fact, it was used in military quests to to describe digging up roads to prevent the advance of an enemy. In other words, Paul is saying, I I didn't want anyone to be able to say that I was in it for the money. That I was being paid to preach. 
But folks, you must also remember that Paul is working primarily among the Gentiles. And the Gentiles had no frame of reference whatsoever about how an Old Testament prophet was to be paid, much less an apostle. How God expected his men to be cared for. Now, the Jews were accustomed to this. And we're accustomed to it in our culture as well, but not so among the pagan Gentiles. So we must remember the historical context here. Paul is surrounded by implacable enemies that will do everything they can to discredit him. And therefore, he was willing to suffer. He was willing to sacrifice, to work with his hands, rather than to give them the slightest pretext for their opposition by saying, well, look, he's just trying to make money off of these poor, naive fools. Now, while many so-called pastors today are nothing more than religious entrepreneurs peddling the gospel to make a buck, there are many out there that are genuine men of God who have been called and gifted as pastors, likewise with missionaries. And Paul is not saying that they should do not that they should do what he did, that they should voluntarily refuse to be supported and that they should work bivocationally. That's not what he's saying. By the way, I was bivocational here at Calvary Bible Church the first five years I was here. And I know how hard it is to work two jobs. You can't do either one very well. I know how difficult that is. You ask any pastor that does that and they will tell you that. And as soon as a ministry is able to support their pastor, they should do that as you did here. But what Paul is illustrating here is the importance of being willing to relinquish your right of financial support if it is in any way restricting and being a hindrance to the gospel. So therefore, it's important to restrict our liberty in Christ for the sake of the gospel, if that is necessary. And by the way, that applies to every area of life. An example comes to my mind. I, I very seldom give personal illustrations. I hope you won't be offended by this, but because um, this is one where at some level I'm the hero of my own story. I always hate those. I, I could tell you so many others that I wouldn't where I'm the villain. But anyway, I remember when I was first here, I, we didn't have much money. We, we were struggling. And my dad was so gracious. He gave us his Mercedes Benz. It was 11 years old, but it was showroom new, just a beautiful car. So I didn't have to pay for a car. Wasn't that wonderful? No, there were people in the church that were really offended with that. They thought, oh, we can't have a pastor driving a Mercedes. I mean, what are people going to think if they come here and they say, my, where's, you know, where, who's got that expensive Mercedes? Well, that's the pastor. I remember one guy saying, well, I can tell you don't need my money here. And so I thought, well, okay, there's a lot of immaturity here, but, I, you know, I've got to be willing to relinquish my right. I mean, God didn't say you got to give up that Mercedes. But I thought, you know, we need to do this. So we traded in the Mercedes, and I got some Ford sedan. It looked like an old white police car without the little light on the side, you know. And um, I drove that thing for, for a while, and, you know, I guess I, I felt pretty proud of myself, maybe. I don't know, but it was... Um, Sometimes you need to do those things. By the way, what was frustrating, those people that were offended with that were offended with other things. Before long, they've left the church, and some of them have not even in church anymore, and others have gone to two or three churches. So you have to weigh all of these things. But I think you get the idea. I think my heart was right, and that's, that, that's how we have to think. 
So if there's anything that we're doing that might cause a weaker brother to stumble or might be a hindrance for someone coming to Christ or growing in Christ, those things need to be jettisoned. The fifth reason why Paul had the right to be supported is because it was the precedent of the Old Testament priesthood. Remember in verse 13, he he says here, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. Now, this was always the pattern. Folks, I might even add that this was the pattern even before the tabernacle. You remember Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, Melchizedek, who was a priest of the Most High God, as we read in Genesis 14. Well, Paul gives a sixth reason here why he had the right to be supported, and that is because it was ordained by Christ, the head of the church. What is verse 14? So also the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Practically speaking, this means that believers are to support their pastoral staff. But it doesn't mean that those who are part of that staff are required to accept it. They are free to relinquish that right for the sake of the gospel if they deem it is appropriate to do so. And that's the purpose of Paul's illustration. In summary, you might say, love limits Christian liberty. And that's what he was trying to do here. So we move on from what he's saying regarding his right to be supported by the churches to, secondly, his reason for relinquishing that right. Now, it's interesting here, despite the six reasons why he had the right to be supported, he says this in verse 15, but I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done So in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. By the way, boast here, he's not speaking of, you know, bragging about himself. Uh, The the term literally means rejoicing or reveling in something. This refers to rejoicing, especially in this context. He's rejoicing in the spiritual privilege that he has to be able to relinquish that right for support so he could more effectively minister the gospel to the Gentiles who didn't understand these things and it might be a hindrance to them. He's boasting in the Lord, as we read in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 31. He's boasting in things pertaining to God, Romans 15 and verse 17. So he's not putting on the woe is me, poor Charlie routine, you know. Oh, woe is me, boy, I tell you, I just have such a hard time. We call it here in Tennessee, po-mouthing it. He's not po-mouthing it. That's not what he's doing here. He's not trying to get them to give something to him. In fact, once again, while serving in the churches, he refused their support. But after he left the church, he was willing to receive it. We read about this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we could so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. 
So Paul is not boasting here in his achievements or successes in ministry. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You remember where that compulsion came from, don't you? It was on the road to Damascus. when The effulgence of the glory of God appeared to him and blinded him with his glory. And at that point, Paul was on his way to persecute Christians. And there, God stopped him dead in his tracks. And God blinded him with his glory and which convicted him of his sin. Then he saved him by his grace and, and set him apart as, a, as an apostle and commissioned him to go and preach to the Gentiles. So indeed, he was under compulsion. That's why he says, woe or cursed am I if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. He's saying here, it wasn't my personal will that was a part of my calling. It's not like, you know, I think I'm going to now stop persecuting Christians and start proclaiming the gospel. No, it was all of God's. It was all of God's grace in bringing conviction to him. In fact, he told the Colossians in Colossians 1.25, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me. Now, I might add that while God calls all believers to be ministers of the gospel, there is a special calling that he places upon some men, a calling that cannot be ignored. This is a very important digression that I think I must offer. I have discovered that one of the most important convictions necessary to sustain a pastor during the inevitable difficulties of ministry is an unshakable conviction that God is, has called him and that he is doing exactly, specifically what God has called and gifted him to do. Without such assurance, doubt and discouragement will be his ruin and Satan will do everything he can to fan those flames and to cause a man to be overwhelmed with doubt and deep discouragement. So the question is, how does a man know that God has called him? Now, I've written on this extensively in the new book, Seven Ruling Convictions of a Pastor's Heart. And when that comes out, you can read more of that. But I would humbly suggest five categories that emerge from Scripture that a man can look at to, to determine whether or not God has called him. Every faithful pastor must have the following, and I believe I gave this to you in the notes. I do. He must have, first of all, a longing to know and serve Christ. Secondly, a sense of urgency to preach the gospel. Thirdly, a pervasive feeling of inadequacy. Number four, a burden to shepherd the flock. And number five, a public confirmation of spiritual gifts, character, and abilities. Now, it is beyond the purvey of this discourse to go into this in detail, but I just offer them to you. But suffice it to say that all of this was evident in the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The 19th century English preacher and theologian, 
Charles Bridges underscored the profound importance of a man knowing for sure that God had called him to undertake the daunting task of pastoral ministry. And he said this, quote, to labor in the dark without an assured commission greatly obscures the warrant of faith in the divine engagements and the minister unable to avail himself of heavenly support feels his hands hang down and his knees feeble in his work. On the other hand, the confidence that he is acting in obedience to the call of God, that he is in his work and in his way, nerves him in the midst of all difficulty and under a sense of his responsible obligations with all mighty strength. And that is so true. So, young men, if you're considering pastoral ministry, make sure that God has called you, because if he is not, you will do it in your own strength and you will end up defeated and discouraged and your life and your marriage and your family will be a disaster, not to mention your church. So, indeed, Paul was under compulsion to preach. He was like Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah could, could not stop preaching despite all of the horrific opposition. In fact, he said in Jeremiah 20 and verse 9, but if I say, I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name, that in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. And folks, I would submit to you that every preacher of, of the Word of God knows exactly what he's saying. We know exactly that feeling of the word burning in our bones. I have written this. Ask any faithful pastor whose ministry has obviously been blessed by God. And he will tell you that one of the primary reasons he was certain God had called him to be a pastor was his unrelenting sense of urgency to preach the gospel, which includes the whole counsel of God revealed in Scripture he will acknowledge how his innermost being panted after the things of God and his desire to minister was so strong that all the riches and power in the world were utterly meaningless to him in comparison. God's call to pastoral ministry will never be a sudden urge out of nowhere. Rather, it will be an unshakable longing of the soul, a solemn apprehension of the inner man that will not let him go. After solemn inquiry during long seasons of prayer for clarity, a man will have an inescapable sense of urgency that mixes joy with fear, zeal with apprehension, and duty with desire. So, dear friends, while Paul had the right to be supported, he relinquished that right for the cause of the gospel and in that choice, he knew that God would bless him in ways far beyond what he gave up. Therefore, he would say in verse 18, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Folks, this was Paul's contribution to ministry. A ministry motivated, motivated out of a heart that longed to see men and women and boys and girls come to a saving knowledge of Christ. 
that long to see Christ having the preeminence in all things. So, when I, so I would close this morning by asking you to examine your heart. Realize that there is no greater gift than the gospel. And there is no greater joy, nor is there any greater privilege in all of the world than proclaiming it and living it. Therefore, we must guard our heart and allow love to limit our liberty. Never do anything that might cause a weaker brother to stumble. And never do anything that might be a hindrance, an obstacle to someone coming to Christ or growing in Christ. And know this, that the Lord will reward far more than what we sacrifice. And we will experience the fullness of that reward one day in glory. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.